This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to In Conversation, a Dub Lab podcast where each week we will bring you interviews from the Dub Lab Radio Archives. Welcome, it's Celsius Drop on DubLab. I'm Frosty, so glad to have you here. Special episode today just for you. We've got Kay Limer beaming in from Hawaii. He's going to be sharing an exclusive mix of music for us and also we'll be talking a bit about his process, Sonic Outlook, and more. Speaking of Sonic Outlook, we are uh, looking out onto the uh, vast plain the dark cloud of beauty irrational overcast is the name of Kay limer's forthcoming album on first terrace records it comes out july 5th and giving you a sneak listen to a piece called corrosive ardor it's from Kay limer we're going to hear a selection of tunes from Kay limer as we build up to his appearance here on celsius drop stay tuned dublab.com and you're tuned in to Celsius Drop here on dublab.com. Thrilled to have your ears here with us. Speaking of here with us today, extra excited because I have a very special guest, Kay Limer on the line right now, beaming in from, I'm guessing, Maui, Hawaii. Yes, Maui. Wonderful. Welcome to the show, Carrie. How are you doing? I'm well today, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing great, doing great. It's uh, a great honor to have you on the show. Big uh, fan of both your music and also uh, all the great things you've done with uh, your label Palace of Lights over the years to to bring uh, life to sound and and share it with folks. So thank you for for all of that. And thanks for being here. Well, thank you for asking. It's nice, you know. As we all work in obscurity, it's always great to get a little bit of recognition for it. Yeah, I mean, obscurity is there's there's intentional obscurity, and then there's obscurity by chance, and then maybe all all the different shades of in between. But I think with with Dub Lab here on the radio, we're you know we're a nonprofit internet radio station now, twenty years of broadcasting, but it's always been about those outer edges of sound and and you know commercial um numbers are are not really uh, a way to to value music necessarily music outside of those commercial spheres has such a a great value beyond the money and the numbers 
Is that something that that you've been drawn to? I mean, is the did you did you hear music early on that started to pull you into the kind of you know other worlds of sound that are out there and possible? Oh, I, I think absolutely. And uh, most of my uh, working life, uh, I've tried to keep music, or at least my involvement with it, free of commercial concern because. I did make my living in creative fields, and once you mix those two things, and I think mix is the wrong word, there, there's really an oil and water relationship between creative work and how commerce puts that uh, puts that out into the into the world. And it's it's actually, you know, it can be okay, but my experience with it was pretty much just negative. So uh, the music has been a sheltered kind of thing as far as. Uh, what I would like to accomplish with it and what the people that have been on our label would like to accomplish with it. Um, commerce has never been a concern. I, I think working through and trying to accomplish something on our own terms and meet our own expectations about what's possible with music has been the primary driver. That's not easily stumbled upon the, the ethos sometimes. I mean, we're, we're here talking uh, within the belly of the capitalist beast in a way. You're, you're maybe on the outer edges of that, the outlying islands of the belly of the capital beast, maybe like the uh, small hair growing out of the belly. But, but it's, it's not something, at least, you know, in my upbringing, you, you come up in and you're hearing both when you turn on the radio or you open a magazine or television what's commonly available to people is more of the you know the successful things it's harder to maybe in my experience stumble upon the the things that are driven purely by passion and and not looking at commerce as the kind of main driver were you kind of privy to a window into an alternate world and how did that window kind of fly open well, I think uh, it, it's just a generational question for me. Um, I uh, I began listening to music, uh, actually trying to listen to music um, in the probably the mid late '60s, and um, then things finally did start to happen outside of purely commercial concerns. So you had a, a very robust uh, scene in in England, of course, with a lot of small labels putting out a lot of material from a lot of artists, some of it really quite astonishing, some of it not so. And uh, at the same time, met people, or very few people again, but met people that had a similar interest. Uh, a lot of things then started to happen in Europe, the German scene, and uh, we were always oriented towards the continent rather than too much what was going on in the U.S. Um, so the, the whole the whole atmosphere at that time was to be somewhat experimental to start to understand music in a broader context than genre mm. and to, to find ways to actually learn to listen and and out of that i've generally come to the conclusion that people don't necessarily listen to music it seems to provide sort of a a social function i guess or a distraction or some kind of barrier between the world as it is and, and what you would like it to be um, but we were always I, I was a I was a listener and the people I associated with were listeners and we enjoyed everything from Stockhausen to 
uh, Edgar Varese to uh, some of the things maybe the Beatles did, and of course Faust and every other sort of uh, independently minded experimental band that we could get our hands onto. There's this, um, you know, you flash to this photo of, you know, this is before before your time, but you know, this like 1950s. Um, kind of domestic setting and with the hi-fi system in the living room or even earlier people huddled around the radio listening to radio dramas and where audio and listening was kind of more of a part of the the household life or the the kind of maybe people um, focused on listening in a way and and this advent of kind of like hi-fi listening well and in the 60s and 70s there's you know there's freeform radio um now here we are decades later where you know th- there's talk of you know the album vinyl being very popular but in general you know it's streaming and it's these things that are invisible kind of music that's track by track so you know if you back in the day were to put on Frippinino's no pussy footing you're going to listen to that, I would imagine, start to finish, you know, back over again oh, and, right, and yeah. spend time with it. But, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I don't want to give a doom and gloom picture because I'm kind of a natural born optimist. But you're, you know, busy releasing music, making new music. Palace of Lights has has thankfully had this this uh, revival and, and you've been releasing a lot of incredible contemporary music through it is there something like uh and and in this time where people might not be as focused on the kind of listening and i hope that's that's not true you know across but is there some sort of kind of light that that keeps you going as far as the hope for for open ears out there or have you just kind of connected with those people naturally kind of built your audience little by little over the years Oh, I think it's a self-regulating audience. I don't think you're necessarily able to make converts too quickly. And uh, I don't know that that's even necessary or desirable, but uh, I think it's been fairly organic. I think uh, I find that there are people that have considered what we're doing now purely in terms of what we did in 1980 and 80 you know those those early early years and and that stuff uh seems to have a bit more of a following i don't know if it's uh, sort of a nostalgia for analog equipment or the obscurity of that period or or just the fact that um youth has a kind of an energy and approach and freedom to to the work that time doesn't allow to be sustained you know just you're thinking about it changes, experience changes, your focus will, will continue to expand or shrink. So um, it was never really about an audience thing. It was more a question of like, if we're going to spend this much time, or at least speaking for myself, if I'll expend this much time and expend this much thought and energy on it, uh, I felt at least responsible enough to say, okay, well, let's manufacture it and see if anybody has anything to say about it. And I think it's pretty well been that way for forever. It's not, again, it's not our promotional efforts are, are zero. <laughs> there's, there's really, there's really nothing much more compelling for myself and the few people that are still with the label uh, than actually doing the work mm-hmm. and getting it to a point that we feel 
at least capable of making a statement. Hmm. And uh, I think the statement is generally simply about the luxurious wonder that is recording and sound and then working out from there in terms of either structural or other kinds of audio preoccupations. So it, it's never going to draw a huge amount of interest. And I honestly don't meet many people that are willing to sit with something for an hour or two hours and, you know, stay awake for it. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it, it's self-sorting. It's just, it's just a, a natural threshold. Which also is is maybe, I mean, maybe they don't have to stay awake for it. Maybe, you know, that's part of putting music in the world is a process of letting go and, and not dictating how the listener experiences it. You know, maybe hitting that liminal state as they're dozing off is when they're going to have the most perfect kind of interaction with oh. one of your pieces. Who knows? No, no cer certainly. And, uh, you know, Steve Peters, who's... Uh, work I, I respect deeply and who's been kind enough to do a few things on our label. He, he's got, uh, I think, exactly that sort of uh, vertical music attitude where you can enter and leave at any point and has more of an installation, sort of an aesthetic, and it doesn't really require or ask that you give it that level of attention. Hmm. Um, but on the other hand, then I'm constantly running into this other notion, as you'd mentioned, where somebody's going to hear a track Maybe they'll hear it once or twice and then on to something else. And its principal function is to lock out the noise on the bus or the train that day or, you know, whatever these things are. I, 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 I start to feel that that kind of practice is a bit of an insult to music mm -hmm. rather than actually taking it for the value that it can offer you. Yeah. It's easier to misuse maybe music in that way these days because it's uh, it's there at your fingertips and if you're you know streaming it for free or paying your you know ten bucks a month to to stream, it's easy to to flip the station in a way and flip from music you know song to song or album to album. But also the the ability for discovery is there and as you mentioned this idea of kind of having a label and and not. You know, having a label is a lot of work, and if your primary kind of goal is to to make music and provide it, the label part is the thing that drags people down often. So it is nice the streamlined ability to release music in 2019. Flashing back to those early years when you when you founded um, Palace of Lights in 1979 that was a different world. That was you know releasing physical product, vinyl and tape and. And did you have friends who had labels at that point, or what? Did you have any kind of blueprint for how you were going to approach that? <laughs> well, no, actually, there was, uh, uh, as always, there was a bit of a network. Uh, some of the independent publications uh, were a big part of getting the word out and getting that sort of thing reviewed. It'd be like Yurok uh, magazine are, or things. Well, like that. yeah, Yurok was one, and uh, there were a couple of others. The names escape me now: electronic music or e-music, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was all just fan-based, really, and uh, people that felt. And we're a part of that momentum. Uh, the, the important thing in, in terms of actually getting it out and about would have been uh, a new music distribution service in New York. I think that was part of Carla Blaze, JCOA. Carla Blaze and then Yale, who runs yeah. Luwakabop, was there. Yeah. And then, um, of course, uh, uh, in Los Angeles, uh, Green World uh, had a lot to do with it. So those two... I, and I think we had uh, Archie a bit Patterson of Archie Patterson from Yurok was Ar involved wrote, with Green World. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. He would have, uh, 
he would have always been personally responsible for, let's say, five copies. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, I think also we had a little dalliance with Rough Trade in the UK, mm. and uh, you know, it was just, it was very nice. I mean, at least there was a place for it to go, and yeah. um, and I, it, it turned into the usual sort of well, yeah, we can pay you for those when we get the next one mm. sorts of relationships. So the, the the notion of any money was was stamped out pretty quickly. Uh, we did break even now and again very early on. It's and then you would burn, would you burn now, your profits because that would be the true like you know you stamp out the notion of breaking even. But if you do break even and make some money, you burn the profits to show your dedication. Oh, of course. But the <laughs> but the, the 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 bonus here that you know the people might not recognize is we had our own studio and each of mm-hmm. us now of course have our own studio and I think there was. A great deal of affection, uh, even to this day, for me in audio equipment. Yeah. I mean, there's an enormous pleasure uh, uh, when we were originally started. I was able to work my way up to an MCI eight track. Mm-hmm. You know, 30 inches per second meant no noise reduction. It was a wonderful machine, and you could do all kinds of things with it, and you could take care of it. <laughs> you know, you, you yeah. could you could uh, adjust the bias daily. You could realign the heads. You had to demagnetize and calibrate. And, you know, it was a it was an, a maintenance intensive sort of a thing. And we had a Studer uh, half track, which was just a beautiful piece of engineering. And and we had a, a board that was constantly failing. So you know, there was all this involvement in. You know, a rudimentary level of engineering that we just frankly enjoyed, and you can't really put a price on that. You can certainly put a price on the equipment, but mm-hmm. in terms of using it and having your own studio and comparing that to needing to rehearse and having everything in a performance sort of a context and renting time and all of that burden was lifted by just having equipment at hand. Mm-hmm. That equipment at hand, you know, you're mentioning these tape machines that that provide endless possibilities, and you know, you you do groom them and keep them up, and um, and but beyond, you know, the tape machines being able to brush your teeth, um, it seems like they have a lot of other possibilities, and as a studio tool, you are using those in such an interesting way, but. It seems one of the most beautiful things about equipment like that, you know, the tape machines or even the synthesizers, you know, it, it had more of a breath to it and a drift to it and maybe a lack of precision that, that kind of gives the music itself, you know, a, a different character. Um, but then that character is only brought to life through the humans behind it. You mentioned earlier the idea of kind of, you know, people being drawn to that youth and that period. And there was this, the collection that Revenge International put together, a period of review, 1975 to 1983, recordings of yours. But in that moment, I mean, to, did you, what was the, the kind of feeling in your mind at that time? Like, was it, infinite and and how how did you feel getting into the studio um each each moment well uh th- those feelings would vary quite a bit because um there would be successes that weren't even vaguely spectacular and failures that were so i i've never personally been able to conceive of something and then execute it for me it has always been a kind of a not kind of but specifically a process based way of working where things are added and subtracted or thrown out or recovered or you know 
deliberately degraded or somehow tried to be rescued. So the feeling was always different. Um, it, it just, uh, it's just, uh, there was an obvious compulsion about it. And I think uh, the, the older I've gotten, the more I subscribe to the idea that creative work is in fact some sort of mental illness because there is a compulsive component to it and it can be isolating and it can be quite maddening. So I was feeding that for a, for a long, long time. Uh, but again, the equipment, the, sim the synthesizers in particular, on through to the tape machines, equalizers, and you know, there wasn't really much else. I mean, you'd, you'd have a few boxes that guitar players would use and um, some reverbs and stuff, but, but the equipment was always very uh, flattering because you could get to something that had perhaps a component of novelty that seemed sort of fresh or new or intriguing to you personally, and you could explore that. So it was a great, uh, a great partner in producing any of that work. It would, to some degree, solve the problems for you. And, and, and through that kind of experience, I always seemed to be drawn to and oriented towards self-regulating systems, things that mm -hmm. basically are going to sort themselves out, whether that happens over five minutes or five hours is always a question. And I got farther and farther away from the ideas of playing instruments to just manipulating sound and trying to create situations where things that at least appear to be music can happen on their own. Hmm. And in the here and now, in your, your studio now, are you using you know, tools or, or even beyond the technical, uh, a mindset that is lending itself more towards that kind of unfolding of sound on its own terms, or, or even the immediacy of being able to kind of, you know, create at, at, at any moment or set things, uh, uh, on go. How, how does it work these days? Is it, uh, does it feel complementary to your kind of a creative, uh, mind? Well, I, I think uh, there there are uh, one of the problems I think there are now is just the absolute lack of limitation because there it's it's such a plastic medium now that uh, you can't really compare it to tape any longer. But what I would tend to do the the way I tend to work for the past ten years or so is to map out pieces, uh, map out situations, and um, then let them kind of sit for a few months. And then come back to them, make some modifications, add add or subtract, or just get rid of it. But I, I've relied more and more on on this opportunity to go back to things because all the settings remain constant. You're not taking Polaroids of mixers and equalizers. You just you know the settings are there. Unless you have a weird fetish, you know, and you're yeah, right. <laughs> You could do that. It's hard to find Polaroids anymore. Um, but I found a I, weird shoebox full of dirty old tape machine Polaroids. Right. <laughs> but uh, uh, because it's so recallable, you know, it, it invites this idea of evaluating it more, mm. more explicitly. You know, when you talked about what it was like early on, well, there was none of that. I mean, yeah. it was the tapes rolling and you do what you can do and then you add or, or gee, maybe you accidentally erase or <laughs> whatever. Yeah. And it's usually some piece of work that you're going to finish in three or four or five days. Mm -hmm. um, now uh, it, it might take uh, a year, not, not of continuous work, 
But I do find that being able to come back to it after months gives me a sort of a perspective that is either going to say, you know, what was I thinking? Yeah. Or, oh, I missed that. Or now I can take it to the left instead of to the right or up or down. Hmm. Um, I'm working on finishing something now that will probably be called Slow Alarms. And hmm. it's been going for, it'll be probably a little more than three years. And, uh, you know, when you listen to things that you've done and not finished a year or two, three years ago, it's a very different evaluation a very different understanding of it than when you're in the middle of it mm-hmm. and and that's just become enormously helpful for me and i i appreciate just having that level of perspective on it mm-hmm. it makes it a little more objective i think and I, it's easier to be critical about what you're doing do you always do you feel like as you're you're sitting down in your studio and and you know turning on the the power that do you always want to aim towards a, a final goal or do you do you enjoy the the act of it the you know jumping into the the process of the sound no matter whether you're going to release it if you're going to erase it or whatever do you find yourself getting in to the studio for joy or is it always driven by an end goal no i've uh, i've i've had to set the whole idea of goals aside a long time ago oh. And it really has, as I said earlier, it really has simply become a question of process or a practice, if you will, to spend that time and that attention for those hours or those days or weeks uh, on something that may or may not work out. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you can discuss the value of both things that do seem to work out to you and things that do not. And I think there's inherent value in, in all of that. But uh, just trying to set a very specific goal has always been elusive for me. I I don't know, perhaps I just don't have the ability to concentrate that way. Um, I've always tried basically to find a way to react to what it is I've been doing or what I've been doing with a collaboration and, you know, initiate things from a, from a decision-making perspective when you get down to a mix or an edit or something fairly concrete that's probably more objectively oriented than the process to find a threshold at which you can say yeah i've got something now that i can go ahead and finish off or or mix or edit so um the other question too is that this the proliferation excuse me the proliferation of material uh, it's so easy when you're working digitally now to just continually add instruments and continually add processing and continually add effects and continually make the piece denser and denser and denser. And I've actually spent some time now trying to find a way into the opposite direction to not rely so heavily on density to create the interest, but to allow subtlety and changes and various states of a few different signals to do that rather than, you know, a a hundred of them. So uh, anyway, you know, you, obviously a lot, a lot of, a lot of potential there. But there's this idea of years ago with Dub Lab, we were working with John Hassel, and he he presented this solid state piece that he wrote way back, I think, 1973 or something, and it was almost this uh, reducing of sound, almost like chipping away at a sound sculpture, you know, where you're fading into nothing. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that you have? Do you have some sort of kind of 
arc that that you're most drawn to when you're working or shaping are you are you are you drifting into silence more often or are you building towards something do you have something that you find as a, a music maker that it's kind of like a, a a flow that that is most reflective of where you usually kind of make it to well it, it could be uh i don't know that i understand what i'm doing well enough <laughs> to to make a, a number of those sorts of decisions but but to try to answer what you've asked i i do think that uh that a, a more minimalist approach to things is probably more um, more successful now mm. because you can do you can accomplish very very quiet, very very subtle things with this sort of equipment that was almost impossible really for basement guys like myself to do with tape. I mean things would just literally disappear into noise, mm. and now these very 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 minute articulations are there if if people wish to hear them and it's frankly a joy to be able to get to that level of detail mm. to take you know a tenth of a second of a little piece of audio and change the pitch and modulation just at that point mm. within a bigger sound uh you know just at these thresholds of perception that that there was just completely inaccessible before yeah, it's pretty amazing, the kind of micro world and um, maybe one easily you could get lost in, but one that kind of creates some vivid uh, pictures. Oh, yeah, the, the rabbit hole effect is, is at work here every day. I, I, have, I have disappeared down some, you know, some little path that seems to promise something of interest. And then at the end of a few weeks of tinkering at that level of duration, you know, you play it back and think good good god what the, what, what could this possibly be worth but again you know uh, along that along that path uh, a few techniques are, are picked up and then it's just a quiet a question of catching your breath and applying it somewhere more effectively or you make one cassette copy of it you release it and then 40 years later a label like revenge international or someone else will <laughs> yeah. come around and you know new newfound lease yeah on life. i mean maybe you can tell maybe <laughs> you can tell me why why that stuff's interesting i i was very very cynical about the whole process for at the start with with revenge and um you know there's so much of that recovery now and I, i'm i'm always curious that people find it of either interest or value it was uh I don't know, there was just a, a, myself and a few of my friends from that time just turned up on another Cherry Red compilation mm -hmm. of the Noise Floor series. And, you know, they're unearthing all this stuff. And, of course, in the early versions of that, you've got work by John Fox and people that, you know, you know and respect and went somewhere with it. And then you got the rest of us, you know, who just sort of hack at it for decades on end that nobody ever hears about. And it, it's it's interesting that this persists i guess I, I don't know if it's just the fact that uh, the western world is now at such a point of elaboration wealth and uh, and uh, resources that it can spend time on this <laughs> or what but uh, uh but here we are um, call the federal reserve i guess we're doing good <laughs> everybody's buying weird music now well, um, think about it. Think, think about the time and effort and resources that have to go into, and not, not just 
remastering stuff that is basically yeah. you know half noise but um you know just to actually find it mm. organize it clean it up yeah. package it market it you know it's I, I just find it humorous this is a story that repeats itself you know you find that most of the in you know often in archival worlds the interesting kind of uh um, music or, or film or otherwise that, that then is, you know, quote unquote rediscovered through thankfully, you know, through people like, you know, Matt Worth at Revenge International, who's really got, you know, incredibly wide mind when it comes to music and willing to put their energy and resources behind it. But it's often the people are quoted as saying, you know, we didn't think it was anything in the moment. We were just doing it, but maybe having that, you know, the, having the right intentions but also being shooting for the non-intentional in sound and creating something that doesn't is also not marked by the moment or the place in the time i think that you know that collection 1975 to 1983 was the window and people will often say oh it sounds like it could be made today but part of the success I, I is you know oh i'm Oh no! Go yeah, I, I think the I think the reason people say that is because what we were doing then, and what others more skilled and at least more um, more public about what they were doing, uh, were quite a bit out there, you know, quite a bit ahead at that time. I, the people commented over and over, I think, on a period of review and and uh, even the Savant, Savant record the, yeah. that that. Um, you know, nobody was doing that in the U.S., and there were weren't that many of us doing that in the U.S. It was mostly uh, European, I think, and U.K. and probably more European than U.K. But um, I think it was just that fact that we were already beyond some kind of edge of what people were aware of that makes it possible for someone to say so many years later that, gee, you know, that's still pretty fresh because. A, a, a lot of the stuff that is in that sort of uh, niche now, I, I don't quite find to be as uh, as appealing to me. You know, it's, things sound a little more two-dimensional perhaps, maybe too clean, maybe too default setting kind of things. You know, uh, as you said, the, the equipment was not so perfectly synchronous that you could do what you do now. And, of course, you've got people – well, like uh, Taylor Dupree, who you know, has worked very hard to get away from that perfect synchronization. And, and, you know, there are a number of ways to do it, but things don't necessarily have to sound so perfectly clocked. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I think that all had a, had a, had a value and a, a quality that can be applied to what's going on today. But I do think that in 1975, there weren't a lot of people you know, trying to emulate Ligeti, you know, with a, (laughs) with a $2 microphone and a cassette recorder. So, so, and that period too, you have to look at what, you know, before all the pop stuff and the rock stuff and all of that was so manifest, you look at composers like Varys and Stockhausen and Ligeti and, that, that that was kind of this modern era. Uh, Daphne Orm, for, uh, another yeah. uh, brilliant brilliant per, uh, composer from that period. You, even uh, some of the, I think even you could put Ron Geeson into that category, mm-hmm. although he's kind of transitioned between, let's say, the truly modern period and into the contemporary period. Uh, that was much more revolutionary to my mind than to a lot of things that I hear today. Mm. 
I mean, it, it's uh, there's this continuum though of music, and I think that people, you know, you were hearing these things that were happening, you know, in in Europe as you mentioned, um, and um, amongst even these little different than than some of the composers and folks you just mentioned but some of the kashmish kind of music and you know cluster and harmonia and all these folks like it's sort of like the other thing that ties these moments together is these people weren't as connected on a regular basis as many people think they were you know they were they were kind of very loosely connected or you know people started to kind of pull them together into a a group afterwards Um, but people find their little bubbles and you know you know can 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 explore from within those bubbles Uh, and it was great that you had a studio and had this kind of little space pod to launch out there um, with a group (laughs) of friends who were who I think that's a yeah, that's a very good observation. I, I mean, there, there is an assumed unity, this notion of a movement that usually is applied, you know, ex post facto. I mean, I don't think there was any conscious movement about it. It was the attraction of the idea of doing things simply and doing them interestingly, and maybe relying on chance a bit more, relying on some of the machines that were new and, and uh, easy enough to operate. Um, mm. If you look at that little stretch there that you describe, you go from, you know, um, micro moog or a mini moog uh one year and then not that long afterwards you end up with a kurtz file and you look at the way you control uh, an analog moog and you look at the way the early kurtz files were controlled and you're really not even on the same planet any longer they're they're completely different approaches to i guess similar problems but but there was a simplicity about um the instrumentation and equipment early on that invited that kind of exploration. I mean, the notion, of course, you just go to a, again, back to the Polaroids, you go to a mini Moog, there were no presets. Uh, There were no presets on any of these devices. So even if you hit on something you like, the chances it would be there tomorrow were fairly slim. Uh, It's going to change. The filters are going to change. The oscillators might shift. uh, pitch you know pitch problems were endemic with all you know and and all of this is stuff that some people would look at as problematic and then people like me and many others looked at it as an opportunity to be pushed somewhere else you know to not be so preoccupied with a particular outcome The uh, the organic nature of those instruments, you know, did again kind of br- bring uh, lively work work that that wasn't um, maybe as precise and and that changed and and was organic. Speaking of organic work and lively work, um, I, I heard a whisper that that you um, you do some farming in your uh, current uh, Maui life. Um, is that your your current kind of day day job? I mean, your jobs you're making music and you're running the label, but um, is that sort of uh, process completely different from from where your head is at musically, or are there some kind of uh, similarities and analogs between growing a, a, an olive and making a song? <laughs> Um, well, you know, we're, we're going to wait and see if the olives actually grow here. Mm. So there's that hurdle. Uh, we're in an agricultural area, so it actually just seemed incumbent upon my wife and I to respect that and do something agriculturally. Perfect. So we you, did you don't want to be with... kicked out of town. 
No, <laughs> no, no, and we don't want it to suddenly be paved over for another Long's drugstore either. So, um, so yeah, we've got some olives and citrus, and uh, you know, it's been a, a quite a learning curve. Uh, it's it's really people think of Hawaii as a very sort of simple, easy sort of a climate, but it's actually pretty difficult here, and it's actually pretty harsh, and there are a lot of uh, a lot of problems where growing things are concerned so um but uh, you know it isn't a life or death thing it's just a question of learning except about for it. except for for the olives except for the olives it yes is. but yeah <laughs> yeah uh except for the olives the poor Actually, innocent yeah. olives <laughs> there's some very sad things going on environmentally now yeah and and you know places like hawaii are particularly sensitive to those changes mm. and um None of the news is really good. I'm sorry to say. Yeah. Well, it's it's good to to be aware of the world, um, but it's also good to kind of create your own world through sound and and pull people into to through portals that that change, you know, their their headspace, whatever you know. Um, yeah, I, I wish it worked better. You know, I I I, I grew up in the, uh, in this you know the sixties and. We, uh, my friends and I, we all did our best to study the thoughts of Mr. Rubin and Mr. Hoffman, and we all had uh, very long hair, and we all did not, none of us participated in the draft or any of this stuff. And I thought, you know, my generation, we, we might actually make the world a better place. And now I, I have to sit here with people my age, older, a little younger, and listen to them prattle on about what a genius Mr. Trump is. So. I guess the I guess the songs weren't quite enough. Those are those are the guys uh, who dropped too much acid. They they yeah. turned the corner and they went right around the other direction. Yeah, it's a much. I guess we're we're just playing a much longer game in trying to make people interested in the world they already have, rather mm-hmm. than fabulating about the sort of nonsense they imagine but the people as as much as some of these things kind of get to the doom and gloom there's you know there's people connected all over the world and you know through what we're trying to do here on the airwaves of dub lab is bring people you know also the revelation that you know there are probably more good things happening in the world at, at any moment than bad things and i think that if people realize you know that 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 is the truth, the actual truth, then it can kind of turn the tide. And I think that people doing creative works and and putting the energy into, you know, that things that might be considered counterproductive when it comes to a, a capitalist society, you know, music that is is truly coming from an artistic place and 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 brought into the world you know, um, outside of those channels. Um, I think that it it can really uh, shift people's minds and, you know, like maybe some of the composers you mentioned or some of the music you're hearing from Europe that inspired you to set up a studio. People hearing what you're doing today with Palace of Lights, palaceoflights.com can, uh, you know, will be inspired to, to jump into action wherever they are, you know, it's it's all possible. Yeah, certainly, and I don't think there's any more worthwhile human endeavor than than creative work. Uh, I mean, um, it's if there's a way to start to get the commerce out of it, that would be wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. I don't quite know how to completely accomplish that. Um, it's difficult, no matter what. Uh, I mean, we were all able to do what we've been doing because we didn't we did not rely 
our music as our livelihood. And of course, once you do, the demands on that music and on you become very different than they do if you are simply pursuing it for for its own sake. Mm-hmm. And trying, you know, and again, trying to be critical and honest about that, not just indulgent. But uh, yeah, it's 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 tough. I had a, a an acquaintance years ago, a woman that was very very talented. She practiced choral work. As a matter of fact, I think I saw her years ago. Uh, performed the Te Deum by Erbo Part, which was fantastically complicated piece of music. Uh, her husband wanted to write screenplays that were, you know, meaningful, and they wanted to have a kid, and she wanted to be the best possible graphic designer known to man. And you know, I would sit and talk with her and say, "Well, you're just going to have to pick one of these things because it's not really commercially, it's not really possible." to do all of these things at that level simultaneously and expect to make a living. I mean, you can set this aside, but if you have a child, obviously economic uh, matters are going to become a very different sort of a problem than if you're on your own and on and on and on. And, you know, I don't know how things worked out for, but the world is full of these very talented people that, that need the opportunity to find what their best form of expression will be. And I, I just think the system right now, such as it is, is is very frustrating for, for, for a lot of people in that regard. And that doesn't seem incredibly healthy to me, but yeah. here we are. Yeah. Hopefully though, people realize, I mean, I think there's this, hopefully a shattering of this. I mean, in the pop world, it's, it's youth and it's, you know, beauty and whatever, but there's also, I think, a shattering of the, the myth that music is for the young and it is, it's for the young and it's for everyone else. But there's people who've, who spent their lives making music and it's also can be a long game, even a, making a, a piece like you mentioned that you've been working on for three years now, you know, it's little by little. It's like, uh, you know, you're just building and, and you're working. And if, it, even if it's a hobby, if it's something that is a release, you know, and, and you're never going to put it out. You're, you're making something. So I think that, you know, hopefully people, that, that that's the pure joy. And I think most of the people who, who make music that resonates most with me and also with what we do here at Dublab are the people making it for the right reasons. They're not making it to be rich and famous. They're making it because it's coming out of them and they, they feel that drive to do that. So I think as long as people come to art and music you know with that sort of uh you know mission or or you know you know well, drive. Say, say orientation yeah i mean uh, the expectation is the work not not the reward for yeah. the work and, and um i think yeah you don't have to sell me on that idea i think that's a very very good healthy and productive way to approach it hmm. so when when a couple weeks ago when um I was making contact with you and I'm just going to quote you said after thinking over the interviews I've done in the past few years I have to admit that I have nothing new to say we have (laughs) we've talked about dirty Polaroids Estonian composers um, and olives and there's more that you you might have talked about all of it Um, is there something very old or very new you want to share or should we jump into this wonderful mix of music that you've uh, put together for us well uh, i think the only thing that i i can really share again is uh that it's uh 
it's really difficult and perhaps counterproductive to pursue some particularly articulated goal when you're practicing music or writing or art. Uh, I mean, I certainly think uh, you can have some kind of an heuristic look at it to, you know, maybe get close to something, but there's an artificiality that starts to creep in with too much premeditation. And I think it's just safer and wiser to be much more receptive about about mistakes, about accidents, about disappointments, and about failures than our culture has led us to believe. Yeah, beautiful mistakes are are uh, what some of the best music's built on. And often, when people look at you know uh, works of genius, it's not a pre necessarily premeditated thing. It's often a lot of uh, happenstance along the way. Um, yeah, or even recognized many years later. Yeah, 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 exactly. I should also say, in the same email, it wasn't like you were, you know, a grouch saying I've said everything I've had to say. You were also giving a nod to um, your colleagues, which is a really admirable thing. And I just want to give a shout out to some of these incredible people that have uh, come to light through Palace of Lights and that you've worked with over the years: um, Mark Barreca, Steve Peters, Gregory Taylor, etc. Um, I urge people to visit palaceoflights.com and, and search, you know, through the, the incredible world of, of sound that, uh, uh Kay Limer has, uh, helped bring into being. And it's really wonderful to, you know, have these very talented musicians that you've worked with for so long, continue to put this music into the world and, and, and share it with us. So thanks for, uh, for doing that. And thanks for, uh, um, big upping your uh, your posse of good good folks. Well, thanks for your kindness in this. It's it's nice to talk to you. Uh, it was all very interesting, and I hope you and the uh, people listening have a chance to enjoy uh, some of the work we put together for you. So we're going to actually jump into uh, a mix, just uh, over half an hour of music um, that uh, that you've put together for us, and um, I'm very excited about it. Anything you want to kind of set people to sail uh, with? Um, any words you want to kind of send them on their way with? Or, or would you like them to just kind of jump into this uh, half-hour selection of music? Uh, I think you can jump in. Uh, the only thing I, I like to say over and over again when it comes to music is uh, just set aside all your preoccupations about genre and listen to what's in front of you. Yeah, and maybe maybe if you are riding the, uh, the, the, the subway and you have us in your kind of earbuds... Maybe um, if you're if you're listening to this as an archive, pause, go outside, find a, a nice park bench or somewhere where you can sit and, and just kind of uh, spend half an hour of your uh, your wonderful life, uh, making your life even more wonderful through these uh, sounds provided by Kay Limer. Sounds great. Here we go. Dublab.com. Kay Limer.
In Conversation was produced by DubLab, a nonprofit radio station broadcasting live from Los Angeles since 1999. Sound editing and theme song by Matea Bain. For more programming, visit dublab.com. And thank you for listening.